In his marvelous book, The Bible Speaks to You, Robert McAfee Brown confesses his wish that there would be issued an official edict that would be posted in every Christian home and church that would speak as follows. Be it hereby enacted that every three years all people shall forget whatever they have learned about Jesus and begin the study all over again. Now, Brown was not trying to suggest that there's not value in building up a lifelong knowledge of Jesus. He was not uh, throwing a rock in the direction of Christian maturity at all. What Brown was trying to get at here is that no matter how much we feel we may already know, no matter how many years we may have been walking with Jesus in the course of our own personal discipleship, there is always something more that God is longing to show us if we have the eyes to see. In our scripture lesson from Luke chapter 24 today, it is very clear that the two individuals whom we meet walking along the road to Emmaus, venturing forth from Jerusalem on that resurrection day, are people who still have a need for fresh vision themselves. They were told, they were talking, we are told, with each other about everything that had happened over the course of that Easter weekend. And the Greek word that is used to describe the nature of the conversation they are having is the Greek term antibalete, from which we get the term antiballistic missile. (laughs) In other words, this is a a furious conversation they're having. There's almost a violent quality to it as they throw back and forth between them all kinds of questions and assertions about the meaning of what it was that they had experienced over the course of of that weekend. Luke chapter 24 tells us that these two individuals, a man by the name of Cleopas and an unnamed individual, have been disciples of Jesus. They're followers of Jesus of Nazareth, whom they describe as a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all of the people. They had heard Jesus speaking of a coming kingdom. They had been drawn into the teaching and miracle-working ministry of Jesus as it enfleshed the reality of a coming kingdom, and they had hoped that he was at long last the one, the one who would redeem Israel, who would bring peace to the Middle East, who would remove the Romans from power, who would provide help with the deepest problems of life. We had hoped he was the one, they said, to redeem Israel. But that was before the arrest of this man. That was before the the mock trial, his conviction, his torturing, his crucifixion, and his burial. That was all before this one in whom they had put their life's hope had been snuffed out, and with him, all that they dreamed might be possible for themselves and for their nation. Some women, of course, had claimed that the story was not over. They made this wild assertion that they'd been to the tomb on that morning and found his body gone. They'd seen a vision of angels who said he was, in fact, alive. But as much as Cleopas and his companion must have wished that were so, you don't build your life on wishes, do you? 
You, you can't afford to go through life just living on the basis of wishful, irrational thinking. And so, toward the end of that Easter day, they'd finally left the company of the other disciples behind and they'd begun their seven-mile walk back home to Emmaus. And it was then. It was then as they headed out some miles northwest of Jerusalem that the Scriptures say Jesus Himself came up and walked along with them. Isn't that often the way that Christ comes? Isn't this often the way that Jesus meets us at those moments in life when everything seems so confusing and mysterious? Maybe you're struggling to discern the right path at a critical juncture in your life. Perhaps you're coping with a major loss that's left you feeling dazed and confused. Maybe you're reeling from a hurt that somebody else has dealt to you, or you're working to find your way out of a mess of your own making or somebody else's making, or you're feeling perplexed by some relationship that isn't working out the way that you expected it to. Isn't that when Jesus often takes the initiative and comes to you and comes alongside of you and offers you his companionship and his clarity and his encouragement for your journey? Isn't that when Jesus chooses to come near? Some of us would honestly say in response to that question, well, I don't really know. I don't really know that. I have often wished for that. But if I'm to be truthful with you, Dan, I would have to say that if Christ is there at all, sometimes I just don't spot His presence at all. When I need it most, sometimes I don't see Him, feel Him, hear Him at all. And like those two Emmaus travelers, perhaps, we would confess that our eyes are kept from recognizing Him even in our darkest and most difficult moments. Why is that? Why, given all the promises of God about His being with us always, is it so difficult to sense His presence sometimes when we need Him most? Why are we left standing sadly before the changes, the losses, the turning points, of life at the very moment when the bible says we should feel his empowering presence some years back now advertisers for the coca-cola bottling company made a advertisement or a series of advertisements which provide i think an analogous illustration that may help explain for us what's going on there the Uh, Ads uh, were displayed during the showing of the Super Bowl. And the claim in advance was that if you watched the advertising segments during the Super Bowl, you would be given clues to an amazing treasure. They would be there in every single one of their advertisements. And I remember tuning in to that Super Bowl, not only for the game that day, but I was curious to see what the clues might be. And I remember sitting there, I was at a Super Bowl party, and we were all watching it. And I just, I kept watching and studying, and there were no clues. There was something odd about the ad. There was this little red box, this little red rectangle down at the bottom of the screen in many of these ads. I didn't know what it was there. I thought maybe there was a problem with the television set. Then somebody nearby said to me, Dan, here, put these on. And they took these little paper, I guess they were cardboard glasses with these red 
plastic lenses and they slipped them on my face. I could have gotten those lenses for myself. I was too cheap to buy the 12-pack of Coke that they came free in. But when I put them on, they filtered out the red in that little box. And I could see the clues plainly laid out there for me all along. I want to suggest to you today that God has a desire, a greater desire than we know, to give us clues to the meaning of life. But we are not putting on the glasses of faith in the way that he has invited us to. You see, Christians don't have all the answers to life questions. We don't, we don't get all the answers to life questions. But we have, by the grace of God, been able to name the mystery to know the one who is behind even the mysterious circumstances, and we have been given the capacity to understand some of the patterns of his providence if we put on the right lenses of faith. I think this is what Jesus was getting at when he was speaking to those two travelers on the road to Emmaus that day. They, they were so confused by the circumstances of their time, by what had just happened that weekend. They were They were very, very puzzled, and Jesus' words to them are very instructive. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Are you surprised, he's saying, (laughs) that you saw your Messiah crucified? Did he not have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? In other words, didn't you didn't you study what was in the red box? (laughs) Didn't you realize that all the clues were there in the history of Israel and the words of the prophets all along? Didn't he have to do these things? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. To fully encounter Christ's presence And his power at work around us requires, first of all, that we regularly look through the red lenses of the Old and New Testament. That if we're going to understand the mysteries, the patterns, the purposes that go on in the chaos of life, we've been given the capacity to see them in their right perspective as we put on the lenses of Scripture. God inspired the writers of the Scriptures not just for the people of ancient Israel, but for the people of all time. All Scripture is God-breathed, Paul tells uh, Timothy, and is useful for, uh, for correction and reproof and instruction and training in righteousness, that the person of God might be equipped for every good work. What a difference a command of the Scriptures makes in our lives when we're seeing life through its lenses. I think of a tourist who's driving through Yosemite Valley one day. How many of you have ever been through this Yosemite Valley? Yeah, and this particular tourist is, stops and gets out of his car and is just awestruck at the magnificence of the valley. He sees the half dome and the mount of El Capitan and his jaw just drops open and almost 
uh, instantly there comes to mind the words of one of the devotions from the scriptures he's been reading just that week. And he hears playing through his mind, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth and you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God and he almost breaks out in song at the sight of this glory and standing next to him on the sidewalk is a person who knows nothing about the scriptures and he says to himself wow that's a big rock those are some really big rocks but the Christian says wow there's the glory of the great creator God or I think perhaps of the of the two individuals who hear the announcement that their company is laying them off from their workplace. One of those laid off says, well, here's just one further reminder that life's a pain and then you die, although he's not as polite as to use the word pain. And uh, just one more example, it's all randomness and chaos. And his co-worker is every bit as stunned by the, the news and is going to face all the same challenges and problems that he's going to face, but his co-worker is a follower of Jesus. And she thinks to the, to, to the passage from Romans that she had read in her Sunday Bible class, where Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. For I'm convinced that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are recalled according to to his purposes. The first employee sees only a slamming door, another random act in the universe bringing pain, but the follower of Jesus dares to believe that maybe this closing door is part of the plan that will force a change, that will open new doors and create new avenues of engagement that will fulfill God's purposes in and through her life. I can think of so many other examples of the power of seeing life through the lenses of Scripture. A group of teenagers are, go out and they are drinking and they find themselves in a, in a near fatal accident. And, and, and most of the folks in that car <laughs> that particular day think it's an amazing stroke of good luck that they didn't die. But one kid in the car has been going to a to a Bible-based Christian youth ministry and, and knows something about the concept of grace. And for that individual, for that child, it's a turning point. It, that child realizes this is an opportunity God has given, a second chance, and, 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 and changes, repents and changes the behavior. Or, or a spouse who's been unfaithful uh, sees in the extraordinarily persevering love of his spouse and evidence of the amazing grace of God that other people look at as simply naivete and stupidity and their marriage makes it because the wife looks at it through those lenses the lenses of God's power for second chances or a person dying of cancer finally perceives in the gathering darkness the light of resurrection yet to come when others around see only a terrible end. It has been the peculiar ability of Bible-reading people through the ages 
to give a coherent name to the mysteries that other people see only as randomness and chaos. And it's through the naming of these mysteries that the language of Christian theology makes sense out of life. It's through the naming of these mysteries that Christians are able to glory in and draw strength and direction from the purposeful hand of God at work amongst us. I love the way the great preacher of an earlier century, C.H. Spurgeon, once put it. He said, a Bible that is falling apart from use is usually owned by someone who is not. Not falling apart from life's use. How, however, can we put meaning to the mysteries of life unless we know the names, really know well the names by which he summons all things under his control. It's not enough, you see, to know that this book, that the scriptures offer you that kind of lens. Uh, There are a lot of people who know that. They're very happy to have their Bible sitting up on a shelf. I'm glad I've got the word of God near just in case I ever need it in an emergency. Right? It's just not enough to do that. So secondly, the, the key idea is we need to make deliberate room in our lives to read those scriptures, and to really apply them to our lives. I think this illustration for me resolves in this particular way. I've got a set of reading glasses at home. I do keep them on a shelf for those times when I need them, right? But I also have a pair of contact lenses without which I'd be bumping into things all the time. I'd be having accidents all over the place. I would struggle to make sense of this world And God wants the Bible to be like a set of contact lenses, not a set of reading glasses, a set of lenses that we wear, keep close to us day by day through every waking hour. I think this is one of the most striking aspects of the encounter that Cleopas and his companion have with Jesus on the Emmaus Road. They made room in their schedule for a deeper encounter with Christ. Listen to the text again. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if they were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. Stay with us. And the implication here is if they had not done something to restructure their schedule, if they had not done something to to ask Christ to come and deepen his engagement with them, to express to this mysterious companion the priority that he was in their life. Jesus might have moved on. The story might have ended right there. Jesus is not going to force himself upon you either. Disasters will force themselves upon us. The world will send out alarms that demand our attention. Jesus is a gentleman. He speaks in gentler tones. He will not force his way into our minds and seize our attention. So if you have been thinking to yourself, you know, one day he's going to throw me bodily into a weekly Bible study. I'm just waiting for when I feel that grasp on my collar and then I'll get involved. I don't know it's really him. If you've been holding out for a day when somebody is going to tackle you out there in the narthex or the commons and drag you into a discipleship group, if you've been thinking there's going to come a day I'm going to walk out of my house on my way to the market or to work the workplace and I'm going to trip over and I'm going to fall flat into an open Bible. You're going to wait a long time. That day's not coming. 
Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them, feast with them, and they with me. There's an ancient painting, as you probably know, a famous painting of that encounter. And the striking thing, of course, is that Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. But the thing about the door that's so striking is there's no doorknob on the outside, only on the inside, where the resident must turn it and open the door so that Christ can come in. Christ longs to enter our lives in this way. What can we do to invite him in? Do you know that it takes, if you were to do so, reading at a normal reading pace about 71 hours to read your way through the Bible cover to cover? I'm not recommending this this afternoon. Um, you don't, you're welcome to it if you like. But I did the math on this and broke that down. And I figured that if you break that 71 hours down into minutes, you divide it by 365 days, you could read the entire Bible before next year at this same time by investing 12 minutes a day. Just 12 minutes. The amount of time you'll spend standing in line waiting for a Starbucks or for the checkout person to get you through at the Jewel or the Dominic's. We have any Dominic? We still have Dominic's. No, we don't have Dominic's at any one of the other great stores out there. <laughs> about 12 minutes is the amount of time sometimes you'll spend waiting at a, at a, at a railroad crossing in, in our communities. Uh, think how quickly 12 minutes goes by. Are you willing to invest just 12 minutes a day to know the Lord God of the universe, to find his capacity to name the mysteries and the meaning of the events of our time, would you consider joining me in this next year in a daily journey of Bible reading so that over the course of the year we may come to know more of this God that waits to be discovered by us? To help you with this, we put together a wonderful little resource we put in the bulletin today on how to study the Bible. It's even beyond Bible reading. It takes you deeper into the meaning of the message. I, I put a lot of time into that little handout don't leave it in the pew. Put it in your Bible, your pocket, your purse. Take it home with you. You can pick up extra copies out in the comments today or find it online if you're watching through the media uh, today. Uh, let me just encourage you in closing to take one further step as we venture on the road away from Easter. It's no accident, I think, that it was when those two disciples we're walking away from the fellowship of the other disciples in Jerusalem that we are told they were downcast. Let me say that one more time a little differently. It's not accidental that they were most despairing, most unable to see life with hope when they had left behind the fellowship of other believers. It's not by chance either that almost every single one of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus are appearances that involve at least two people or more. Nor is it merely coincidence that when the Emmaus pair finally stop their journeying and they gather in a home together with Jesus and they break bread and they're sharing life in that way with Jesus, it was then, the Bible says, 
that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. There is something about studying the Bible in community that God blesses. I've experienced it many, many, many times myself. Sometimes it's because uh, others around the table have got insights I just didn't have. Sometimes it's, it's because they correct my perceptions when I misunderstood what was there. Sometimes it just encourages me to hear how God has been at work through his scriptures and the lives of other people. All I know is this. Jesus promised, whenever two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am with you. There I am in your midst. You will meet me more fully in Christian community, Jesus is saying, than by seeking him, me all by yourself. So here's my encouragement to you today. I'm about to let you go. Here's the good news. Here's the encouragement. Resolve that this year you're going to get to know God all over again. It's going to be as if you forgot everything you already learned and you're going to start it again with the passion of a, new, a newborn learner and you're going to get to know Jesus in this deeper way. Secondly, make the time to do that. Take the 12 minutes that it, that it requires to soak in something of the scriptures day by day and begin to apply those scriptures to your life. And then thirdly and finally, alongside of your private study, uh, all of those devotions you may do, join a small group, get part of a Bible class, come to an equipping uh, night here at the church where Christ can make himself even more personally felt and known in your life than if you were to try and do this by yourself. You know, many years ago, a, a boy named John uh, took an invitation like that. I have to tell you that John was not particularly excited about accepting that invitation. It felt like an ought and an obligation, like some of you are feeling right now when you hear me make this challenge to you. But this is what John would later write about uh, that experience and its outcome in uh, his diary. I went very unwillingly, he said. Let me stress that. I went unwillingly, somebody dragged me there, to a society in Aldersgate Street where one person was reading Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans, the Scriptures. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt suddenly that I did trust in Christ, that Christ alone was my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and had saved me from the law of sin and death. That investment in God's word and that society or fellowship of others was the instrument God used to change the life of a young John Wesley and then through John to set off the greatest spiritual and social revival that England has ever seen and ultimately rippled out and changed the course of Western civilization. Were not our hearts burning within us, said Cleopas and his companion, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were, were not our hearts strangely warmed by the encounter we had? Has your heart been warmed like that? Let's find out 
As you meet him through his word in the coming days, and you find your way deeper into a fellowship with other believers, may you know the mysterious warmth of the master's presence. And may he, through you and me, bring even more light into this darkened world. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, we give you thanks for the timeless truth of your scriptures. And we pray that even as you once encountered those two venturing away from Easter, you might also companion each of us in the days to come. And working the miracle of your mysterious grace through our lives, further equip us, Lord, through the reading of your word and its application to be ambassadors of that kingdom which even now is moving across this planet, penetrating lives, changing lives for the good, and which one day you promise you will return and make all things new. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.